All right, uh, everyone, welcome to the Oil & Gas Podcast. Today is Friday, May 31, uh, here with uh, myself, Glenn Parrott, and my co-host, Mr. Aaron Vandeford. Aaron. Oh, hello, good morning. Good morning. Uh, we're joined today in studio in the Intercom Global Studios <laughs> of uh, uh, here in Denver, and we're joined by the president and CFO of Clear Creek Resource Partners, Ryan Zorn. Ryan? Good morning, welcome. guys. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for having me. Thank you for being here. I do appreciate that. And by way of background, Clear Creek Resource Partners uh, was formed in, it was, had it been, is it early 2017 or late 2016? Yeah, you got it correct. We spent a good portion of 16 trying to fundraise around an idea um, and finally closed our first round of funding in early, early 17 and uh, have been at it ever since. And Clear Creek is a, just a pure DJ operator, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we uh, we were sort of multi-basin in our screening process in the, in the very early days, but we pretty quickly planted some flags up along the Cardo-Wyoming border in a very rural part of uh, Weld County and, and southern Laramie County, Wyoming. So, awesome. uh, yeah, we've accumulated about a little over 40,000 net acres. That was going to be my next question. How many net acres? Yeah, and we're sort of uh, sandwiched in between what is now the High Point Hereford position uh, in in Weld County, and then uh, to, that's immediately to our east, uh, and immediately to our north would be EOG's uh, what historically has been a very heavy Codel uh, development play in in Laramie County, Wyoming, sort of south and east of of Cheyenne. Gotcha. Well, again, I mean, that's great. And thank you again for joining us. I do appreciate that. And uh, we're excited about it. The typical structure on this one is we kind of uh, go through this, um, you know, news and highlights of the week to see if there's any takeaways, anything that we can really discuss with the being a shortened week. Uh, I don't know. There was a whole lot. Uh, I guess uh, what's come up to the top here would be, I guess, on Wednesday, uh, we saw Devin uh, made a strategic move, quote-unquote strategic move, uh, departing Canada, selling its assets to Canadian Natural Resources. I think it was around 2.5 to $2.8 billion. Um, I, good move for them? Bad move? No, I think it, it's a great move. Yeah. Uh, and the, the fact that the market's asking companies to be focused, high rates of return projects, uh, being a little bit more true to, to who you are instead of having these kind of disparate uh, assets if you will. And so I think, you know, Devin is able to do what they're doing. Canadian Natural, the buyer of these assets, gets what they want out of it. And so I think, you know, here's another multi-billion dollar move of people really focusing in on what they may be really good at. And so I think that's a, it's a good transaction for, for everyone. The, uh, the other item that popped on up, uh, Ithaca Energy, uh, I guess they're acquiring Chevron, uh, North Sea Limited for two billion. Chevron is just bringing in the dollars. <laughs> it's like breakup fees and M and A. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I I want a breakup fee. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. A, I guess it's um, uh, going to. Uh, I guess make them the second largest producer in the North Sea, um, and you know Ithaca certainly being the uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Delic Group. So I guess that, you know, that was one of the other, I guess, highlights on there. Let me see what else. I'm kind of going down the list. I'm taking a look. The DOE uh, had a press release this week. 
announcing uh, its authorization for additional LNG exports uh, from Freeport LNG. Um, I guess they now have the authority to export an additional 0.72 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas from LNG. Any thoughts on that one? You were kind of making mention earlier about exports and LNG and yeah, I'm not as I, I should have reviewed the the data before I. I just wanted to over, put you but, on the spot. Sorry, <laughs> but I think it's been one of the eye-opening things for us as you know where we are. We're mostly crude producers, but the the export capabilities of the U.S. Um, and the qualities of the crude that we're now producing out of shale is uh, in high demand around the globe and. I think we've hit weeks where we've exported 3 million barrels a day out mm-hmm. of this country, which is astonishing, given that we couldn't do it not too many years not ago. Not too many years ago. Right. Um, you were making we, mention that people saying, hey, we're exporting, but why are we still importing? You're right. fielding that question. Is that like family and friends? or? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation uh, here in Colorado over the last year about the components of energy and why it does what it does. And... Uh, I think that is a confusing point for people. Why are we still importing, and I'm shaky on my numbers here, but seven-ish million barrels a day, mm-hmm. maybe? Seven, eight-ish? Uh, that, well, they were right in there. Yeah. Um, but t- generally, that's lower quality crude, you know, quote, unquote. Right. It tends to be heavier. It tends to, or it has, has historically come from places like Venezuela and some of the, even Saudi, um, you know, is ge- generally producing a lower quality of crude, a heavier grade um, than what we're pulling out of shales here. Um, but the whole refinery complex along the Gulf Coast was retrofitted, you know, over the last 20 years because that was the supply that, that everyone thought they could see coming. They didn't realize shale would be such a dominant feature in our supply equation today right. and producing the quality of crude that it does. And so, you know, here the refineries have spent billions, you know, you know, you know, retrofitting their or, or reconfiguring their facilities to take the heavier, sour grades. And, you know, so that kind of creates the export market yeah. for, for our crudes uh, that, that is now blended with some of those uh, heavier grades around the globe to create a product yield that's optimal. And so we're, we're, we're playing a larger role in that global uh, oil and gas market. And with the LNG, with this announcement from the DOE, uh, you know that gla- that gas can be part of that global conversation and, and the oil. Uh, the Port of Corpus Christi announced this week as well um, that it began work on its dredging project to allow heavier ships to get through that port uh, and move more crude uh, to global markets. And so we we had the cor- Port of Corpus Christi in Dallas. That's right. Yeah. And Sean. so it's it's kind of fun mm-hmm. to actually see that that they were making mention that this was a twenty year. Uh, project in the making, and now we're we're finally doing it. It was kind of nice to see the the Dallas momentum and actually something happening uh, on that front too. Okay, well, I didn't have much of the way of other highlights necessarily. Is there anything you guys wanted to touch base on? No, I but, think that's uh, a good transition into kind of the rest of our our topic. Yeah, because and and again, I really wanted to kind of you know have a, a good dialogue here with Ryan and I guess before we get into it um, give us a little bit of background about yourself you're a you're a Colorado guy right um, correct yeah. native yeah I uh, born and raised in Fort Morgan Colorado which is 80 miles northeast of Denver 
sort of on the eastern periphery of the DJ Basin, historically speaking. But um, I went to Car School of Mines, uh, was on my way to do a double major in mineral economics and petroleum engineering. But I always had a more of an interest in the finance end of the business and uh, kind of the things all related to analytics. I was not a very good engineer. Uh, I'll just say that outright. So there was the decision was sort of being made for me probably. But um, uh, I was fortunate. I was I was a guinea pig at mines. I was the first undergrad class to graduate with an undergrad in mineral economics. They'd, really? always, they'd always had a master's and PhD program. So right. probably one of the first um, in a series of good luck, good timing, you know, events in my short time on the earth, <laughs> but um, I was able to uh, get a job offer in the fall of my fifth year before I had all my other petroleum engineering degree completed. I had the mineral act thing done because I'd spent so much time in my first two years avoiding the, the hard stuff and taking electives with the grad students in the <laughs> economics department. <laughs> and uh, uh, I had a job offer to go work for a small company that's now under the IHS umbrella. It was called Jonas Harrell, but it was sort of a investment research, benchmarking, um, you know, kind of similar to some things that Intercom, I think, does today. Uh, And I was in charge of the database, and database was sort of a new concept. I'm kind of old. Uh, This was, you know, 1996. Uh, But kind of an online database that uh, business development groups and investment banks, um, some limited, you know, bigger investors would subscribe to, and we would try to describe for them, you know, what was going on in the M&A markets and capital markets. And it was a tremendous foot in the door for me to these types of groups. And it wasn't very long before a client had hired me to go to Houston to be a grunt analyst in an investment banking group. Um, I was always pretty interested in the stock market. Uh, A couple years after that, a couple floors above me, Simmons and Company was expanding their platform beyond just oil field service focused businesses. And so they, I was one of two guys they hired to start their equity research practice, um, covering independent EMPs. So from the smallest to the largest, really, it was a cool spectrum. Um, and Matt Simmons, uh, was a really prolific guy in the industry and opened up a ton of doors that i never deserved. Um, but it was, it was a fantastic avenue to really start to study companies. And from the bottoms up, because I sort of bringing this technical angle to the analysis, which really wasn't prevalent back in those days, I wouldn't say. I mean, we were kind of one of the first to bring out NAV as a cornerstone of our recommendation methodology. Right. Um, uh, but people, you know, the Enron was about to blow up. I mean, there were a lot of energy black boxes that had burned people right. in the merchant space. And so this NAV approach was sort of visible or had a, had it had a, a transparency of, to it. Or, yeah. yeah. And so it really resonated. And of course, it was just as the shale phenomenon was lifting off, um, which really lent itself. So we were coming off this whole bright spot driven thing along the Gulf Coast and in the Gulf of Mexico, where it was not totally one and done type of things, but it was very, uh, you know, very ge- geology driven, mm-hmm. right? And and, sci- and 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 the 3D phenomenon and all that data, was, all that data was had really in. generated all that supply that was going on. And meanwhile, the rest of the country was in decline um, until shale really took hold. But um, that's really interesting. interesting. I, 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 I didn't appreciate uh, where um, that you were on that investment banking side because your your career really has spanned sort of you know, from the investment banking. You've been 
uh, an asset manager uh, on, on the buy side. Um, so, you, you know, you, you've got the engineering background, you've got the financial background, and, and now you're, you're, you've moved over onto the operator side of things. So it's really, it's actually pretty impressive. You get quite the spectrum. Yeah, I've always felt very fortunate. Um, this industry has afforded me a ton of opportunity. You know, I've been able to live in Houston and New York. Um, for a kid from Fort Morgan, that was, maybe you could have contemplated Houston, but New York was sort of unattainable. Yeah. I mean, not even in, on the radar, quite frankly. Um, I've met incredible people. I, you know, that, that equity research experience, you got the dialogue with kind of C-suite people very mm -hmm. early on in your career, which again, you know, that's a pretty unique, you know, circumstance. And, um, and then you're sort of this liaison between, you know, companies and then their investor base. Right. And so it's an interesting position to be in and try to navigate those constituencies because essentially the buy, you know, the investors were our clients. Right. Um, so uh, it was a it was a really informative time in my life, and it, it allowed me to. And we're you know going through this whole transformation of how data moves, right, and how it's disclosed. And um, again, I just think right place, right time. I, I, it was it was fun to be on the sell side, being a research analyst, but then going to the buy side, right. you know, you could manage a lot of money just by yourself because all this data was flowing at you and there was capacity to manipulate it and generate ideas off of it. <clears throat> More so than I think any recent, I mean, any time in our history, right? There was a lot of evolution there, which was changing at a very fast pace, which sort of was one of the reasons why I got out of it in 2012. I'd had a good run and right. I, I wanted to get back towards the business and be involved in it more personally, you know, or indirectly. And so I shut down what I was doing in 2012. And then ultimately at your, at the intercom conference, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, but out, out of a conversation, uh, uh, with one of the board members at Bonanza who was running a, who was still running precision drilling, yeah. uh, Kevin Nevue. I mean, was sort of a uh, an acknowledgement that they they might need some help. They had just become public um, at Bonanza, and right. I was really interested in being involved in the DJ. And so, um, my initial days in Bonanza were some of the most fun of my career because um, it was a big transition for me, and and uh, I really loved wearing a lot of hats in what was still a pretty small company, but but a ton of tailwind in the DJ with um, Noble and Anadarko in particular really elevating the DJ to be sort of it, their onshore marquee asset uh, for good reason. And um, so, you know, it Bonanza sort of was the the best of times and then it got to be the worst of times, you know, in, you know, the, with the, when the cycle turned, but. Uh, oh yeah, yeah no. um, that, that sounds like the energy space. But yeah, it, it, you know, it was, that was a very disappointing uh, outcome uh, for me. I, I, you know, I was, you know, it could just be again. I I had high school friends that worked for us in the field, right. um, so there was a lot of, yeah, just a lot of connection uh, there uh, in a number of respects, and uh, it was hard to watch and and hard and you know I felt you know responsible for well certain parts yeah. of it, yeah, yeah. Um, you, uh, you know, you're 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 back here. You're in Colorado, and now you. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is you've been a very vocal proponent, at least. LinkedIn-wise, of positive messaging about the oil and gas industry. And I wanted to explore a few of those posts with you, if that's all right. 
Sure. And so, uh, and, I, and because it actually, I think, is is uh, refreshing, to be honest with you. One of them is uh, on oil and gas and the liberation of women. I, I haven't seen that actually, you know, really from anyone. We have uh, interaction with... Uh, Women's Energy Network, but but which I would have that expectation. But you come along and you've got these posts along this. So can you talk about that? You you mentioned the quote unquote the liberation of women is one of the most powerful and underappreciated results of the availability and use of oil and gas over the past 130 years. Yeah, well, this that post was a result of uh, a video that Mercedes Benz put out about the first voyage of sorts of the first car that Carl Benz had produced. And it looks like a motorized tricycle. Um, But maybe at the conclusion, we can provide some links to these things. Um, But for me, it was very eye-opening. Obviously, it's, it's, there's actors in here, but is this, this 60 mile car ride, she took her two boys, you know, and I think it was southwestern Germany Mm -hmm. um, to go see her family. And she sort of did it without asking Carl. <laughs> and uh, so she was a pretty tough lady. I mean, I, I, you know, just the courage to do that, I think, is something that we have a hard time appreciating, right? Yep. Um, but she did it, and she had to be inventive on the way because it broke down multiple times. And this video sort of depicts that in its very condensed form, but it also shows the living conditions uh, that, you know, were prevalent back. This is 1888. Mm-hmm. Which, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that long ago, right? I mean, uh, you know, we here in the U.S. have been lulled to sleep because we are now probably three generations into everybody having a light switch that always works. Right. But that is not the case for billions of people around the world. And certainly, I think that has um, critical impacts for women and children. And um, a lot of these societies tend to be patriarchal and women are forced to you know, go gather the water, do all the cooking, cleaning. Um, you know, kids aren't being educated. I mean, when you don't have steady light at night, literacy rates suffer. And, you know, just I think um, there's a lot of interesting studies on just the cost of light and how it's exponentially decreased in the last 100 years in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and, leads us into the second one, which was where you uh, improvements in human well-being. Uh, yeah. You said, you know, like in 1800, 43% of the kids worldwide never saw their fifth birthday. Right. And and, and the time that first car ride w- was executed, um, it, the, the number was a quarter. Um, you know, there's, there's still places in the world that have that sort of mortality rate. They're all kind of Central Africa. Right. Um, you know, in the most desperate, you know, living conditions we know on the globe today. Um and you can see that they have no reliable access to energy. And so, I mean, I'm not saying it's the only precursor for quality of life. And the UN has a human development index that I've you know, created a couple charts to where you can sort of see the correlation between energy use in total. This is oil, electricity, natural gas, just energy across the board per person. But there's a very distinct correlation. And, and it's related to incomes, too, of course, because they, you know, uh, you can afford the energy, oh, right? Right. Um, you know, which gets us probably into a, a next topic of like some of these um, movements that are afoot, and, and I really believe sort of an arms race 
um, towards wind and solar are making energy less affordable. At least that's what we've witnessed so far. And there's a lot of claims, of course, that get made that that's not the case with new projects, but we we haven't yet proven that to be true. And it, it's, it's a little concerning to me, obviously, because we've got instances even in our own country where the rate of inflation of power prices, just looking at that in isolation, have been 50% greater than the national average when people are trying to implement heavy wind solar agendas. Um, but we can get into that further if you'd like. But it, well, it, no, no, it, that's that's actually you bring up a really good point. And there was a gosh darn it, I cannot recall the the article that I read recently, but it was, and it may have been out of the Manhattan Institute, discussing the efficiencies that the wind and solar crowd have gained over the past decade and a half. You are not going to see those jumps in efficiencies any further, literally because of restrictions on physics yeah. uh, that, that that is increasingly, you know, minuscule to really be impactful to making these other forms of alternative energy, um, they, they contribute, but they certainly aren't at the point where they're going to replace. Yeah, and I think that's the hard psychological thing because we've seen so much advancement in how back to information flows and, and just, you know, what the power of your iPhone is and how that's evolved in your lifetime. You have witnessed that, right? Yeah. And so you think that is translatable, that sort of inflection is translatable into a physics-oriented business that we're in of supplying energy of various forms. And I'm all for a portfolio. I don't mean to single out wind and solar. I do think a portfolio approach is, is totally appropriate. Right. Um, I worry when we get into, well, we're going to go hundred percent to a couple forms that are totally, you know, to, to date unproven to supply peak demand levels. And that's the other thing I think people get wrong or don't recognize is you can't look at an annual average uh, demand level. You have to look at, you know, in, in Colorado, August, July, when AC load, yeah. air conditioning load is the greatest. Ironically, that's when the wind blows the least. So there's these, and it's why you have to have natural gas generation to offset that. And that doesn't get reflected in some of the, the, uh, the, the project costs don't account for, well, you got to build backup Right. Uh, and yeah. supplemental power for the variability of the weather-driven power supply, wind and solar. And so looking at those costs in isolation is the wrong analysis, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not what will be reflected ultimately in the rate base that the consumer will pay. You, um, you're a, a strong supporter uh, locally of the, I, I say, quote, you know, the hashtag energy strong here in Colorado. Um, is it, is it frustrating to have your message of liberation of women, improvements in human well-being at odds with what's now coming out of the state government in Colorado, particularly as it relates to Senate Bill 181 and prior to that Prop 112? And the message that when when the, the base of that message is the industry is detrimental to people's health. Yeah. Yeah, it's very tough to hear because I care deeply about the state, its people. Obviously, um, I, I live here. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I my family lives in Eastern Colorado. Uh, um, 
you know, I, we live on all sides of the DJ basin, my, my immediate family. Um, and so they, it, they talk about admissions and, and, yeah. and it does need to be dealt with certainly. And those are valid concerns, but, mm -hmm. it, but not at the, um, detriment of the industry as a whole. Well, and again, I think people, uh, you know, thinking back to what we've been through kind of politically in the last year, you had obviously the ballot initiative 112, which would have created very large setbacks relative to current regulation, relative to a lot of different things, not just occupied structures, which again, you had to really dig into the detail of that ballot measure to understand its impacts. And, you know, even for us that are, um, in extremely rural parts of Weld County, that bill would have been devastating, or that right. bill, the ballot measure the would ballot have been measure. Yeah. had that passed because it it also buffered against intermittent streams, which, you know, the prairie in Colorado is full of gullies and washes that drain rainfall when it does come, right. and it usually comes in bursts, you know, <laughs> thunderstorms, and so you get these, you know, mini caverns that that evacuate the water right but those are intermittent streams and uh they're all over yeah. you know and so you can't go another 2500 feet without encountering another one <laughs> so that's why it would have you know blotted out our entire business right so you know that was but that but that ballot measure was pushed by bicoastal concerns that are keep it in the ground folks they're very anti-fossil fuel folks but they were disguising it and projecting it as a local health safety control right. measure which as soon as that thing was defeated they hired joe salazar who's coming off his stint at, at the legislature, mm -hmm. and you know they're all about litigation now and we also had the martinez supreme court decision come in i think it was january or february um you know that where they had had a conflict with the COGCC that they were issuing permits without, in their minds, uh, accounting for the cumulative effects of all sorts of um, impacts to uh, wildlife, water, air, climate change. Um, it, they ultimately lost that case, but it feels like 181 was sort of crafted around that decision to give more opportunity for legal challenges to each one of those uh, components of impact, which we, and then again, we have to own uh, a variety of impacts. We all have them. Wind and solar has them. I mean, it, all energy forms have impacts. Um, Absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the discussion uh, has very quickly just become very political, and it's been hard to keep it grounded in a lot of fact. Uh, um, and there's a ton of emotion involved in it because people, there's been a lot of in-migration to Colorado and people have come here for, you know, maybe an idea that they would, you know, see the horizon. I mean, I mean, and not, not that they don't, but they never expected to have any intrusion to that. Um, uh, and so, you know, we're that, that I think that's sort of the, the battle of public opinion that we have. But I think it's a very small, uh, but very vocal minority. Um, but then you layer that on with Green New Deal and some of the things that are now bubbling up nationally, which I think are are, are sort of a uh, you know a a, a direct uh, attempt to just fight Trump, right? And I'm you know Trump, love him, hate him, indifferent to him, whatever your issue is. When he pulled out of Paris, he sort of made this whole thing, in my estimation, a, a target. Um, and uh, there's, 
you know, as it relates to climate change, there's really nothing more divisive, you know, that, you know, if you're left-leaning, you're you totally believe in it. If you're, if you're right-leaning, you tend to maybe have a more moderate view. You may not, you may believe the climate's changing, but you don't think it's catastrophic. Yeah, as, as you, I mean, you can't kind of answer my next question a little bit, but is this just a Colorado issue? And I think we can all say, no, it's not a Colorado issue. This is kind of a in, really interesting microcosm. But what can other operators um, learn from what's going on here to maybe come together and maybe educate folks a little bit better? Or what responsibilities are are we going to have to bear as an industry to to kind of move forward down a path? Yeah. Um, I wish I had an answer. I well, knew good. it would work. I, otherwise, we'd make you. <laughs> yeah, I, I. But I do think. I mean, you know, I haven't really been involved. You know, from this angle, mm-hmm. like I've always felt like uh, you know I knew enough about how the industry operated and the benefits it provided, but I never, you know, um, took the time to try to bring that to the front and like, and make sure that people understood it, that I was my friends, neighbors, you know, that crowd, like we, we kind of get in our silos and, and talk to each other in industry and we sort of an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we just, the good news is in all this, I think we've mobilized a lot of people who have gotten more comfortable having the conversation. And again, I kind of come from a background where I'm, used to having the conversation sure. um, with people who, I mean, as a sell side analyst, you've got to develop thick skin quickly because there are a lot of people that think you're wrong half the time. Right. <laughs> you know, so um, I was, I'm used to being told I'm wrong. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me as maybe as much as it does other people, but it's, but again, it's, um, I think there's, I, I think there be, and because data is so rich these days and available to people, we need to equip our, our, our colleagues to, to have this conversation. And I, uh, you know, one of the guys that I think is doing a, a remarkable job and I really try to, you know, mimic him as, as best I can, uh, is Chris Wright mm-hmm. at Liberty. Uh, you know, his talk, I mean, we're, you know, is really that he's out giving, I think more frequently now is related, you know, the linkages between uh, hydrocarbon discovery use and overall public health. Um, I think it's full of positivity that is hard to reject, especially on a global basis. I think in the U.S. we sort of plateaued a bit, right. and so we don't see that rate of change. But for people in the most desperate conditions around the globe, they see that rate of change, and it's it it, it is totally selfish for us to deny them um, of the chance to to better their lives. You know, you really you really touch on a good point, and that is. It's, it's it's communication and messaging, and I'm gonna I'm gonna downshift us a little bit from, you know, just industry folks. But but you are taking that message. You are involved with education of kids, so that they have a perspective. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. It's uh, with a core elementary fourth and fifth grade STEM class. Is that right? Well, yeah. I, I mean, again, I I shouldn't say that I'm like totally. I, I've done it. Uh, a couple times now. Um, first of time, I, it, it was a uh, STEM class down in the Cherry Creek School District. I had a, 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 
a teacher there who I had gone to high school with mm -hmm. knew I was involved in the business and was just looking for outside speakers to come. But this was in, you know, February, March, right in the midst of 181, right? So yeah, I was wondering I, how you got involved in that. So yeah, so I went literally one day. I went from speaking to uh, fourth grade STEM students to testifying in front of the Senate Finance Committee. <laughs> it was like, the, and and did they have the same questions? Well, the fourth graders had more questions. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say, was it a tougher crowd? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm not. That's not a dig on, no. on on the testimony process at all. That's that is a brutal for all all parties. I think that's a, a that's an endurance race, yeah. um, especially on that particular issue. Um, I think two of the four times I testified was after midnight. Holy cow! Um, so you can about imagine what people's attention span, span really was, was at that point. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, but. You know, I think, again, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. So, you know, as we worked up to the November election, how do I talk to my friends and neighbors? How do I, um, you know, just communicate the base concepts of why we're doing what we're doing? Um, and then that just translated into a bunch of material that I thought could be morphed into, you know, a, an hour long talk. Uh, you know, I, I have a fourth grader, um, uh, second grader and first grader, but fourth grader I know, or fifth grade, um, part of their curriculum in DPS is an energy unit. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got the packet from the teacher and, you know, by volume, uh, it's crazy. I mean, maybe 10% on, on oil and gas, although probably 30, 40% of the packet is dedicated to propane of all things. And the rest of it is solar. Okay. And uh, okay. just in, in terms of proportions on like what actually delivers energy to people, it's right. totally mismatched, right? You know, it's just, um, so, you know, I kind of, you know, you kind of see that curriculum. And again, my, my kid hadn't been through it, but, uh, uh, you know, I just felt like there was maybe a need to, you know, maybe bring uh, a, a, a perspective and, 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 you know, try to be as, uh, you know, and, and just source everything. So you... Um, you, it's total fact. I mean, not, not, you know, opinion, you know, giving to fourth graders. I mean, that yeah. doesn't do any good, but, um, but just be there. And, and they, when you, when you start, uh, asking them questions, they, it's a pretty rich discussion. It's, it was actually pretty refreshing. Nice. That's yeah. pretty neat. So I, I've got a, uh, third grader going into fourth, last day of school today. Um, and a first grader and preschooler. But I'll, I've gotten a couple times this year for my first grader, you work in oil and gas? Yeah. I'm told this. And I was like, where, where are you getting this? And and so- Was it a negative context? It wasn't or? a negative context, but you you know, it, it there are conversations happening at a very young age that that maybe don't have as much background for for what the, is truly going on. Uh, and, and I think those are important places to to make sure we're giving folks the facts, giving folks an opportunity to make decisions for themselves uh, through a fact space. So I, I've looked through your stuff. It's, it's really interesting. I love that. Yeah. And you've got a book here that you've brought in and it's it's chock full. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, you know, it's a little bit of overkill. But, you know, I guess my point is you want to be prepared as you can be to to address as you can people's questions and it's okay to say, I don't know, but I think it's also imperative. You get back to them. All right. Like if you don't know something, go figure it out. Um, build a network around yourself. I mean, again, I, 
I think we all have to do that or and, and some resources. I mean, there the data is out there. I mean, it is there for you to go get. And it's not that it, it, it takes some time to navigate it. And hopefully you can I'm happy to share my materials with anybody who who pings us or pings you and wants it. But um, because I do, uh, I'm confident in it. I I stand behind it. Um, I've done a ton of work on it. I mean, it's my it's my work. So I guess you have to trust me. Yeah. But uh but I think um, after listening, again, to people like Chris Wright and others, um, uh, I mean, there's the, the, the team at Koga um, obviously is very well-versed in speaking directly to the, the political class that's implementing a lot of the things that are going on around us. The, um, the biggest misconception yeah. or pushback that you see? Um, from who? When you're talking to either the students or the political class. I think it's, it's, well, let me, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question as directly as I probably ought to. Um, it's an open-ended it, question. But I, it feels to me like people don't understand what we can supply uh, in various forms, right? It, we're, you know, one of the, one of the charts in here, I mean, we're getting two thirds of our energy from oil and natural gas is primary energy consumption in the U.S., right? Um you know, meanwhile, renewables, which is a whole collection of things well beyond wind and solar, is 11% today. Now, that's growing, but just the, the rate of change it needs to, to have between now and 2040 for renewables, and wind and solar in particular, to be 100%, that wedge, as you look at the share of total energy supply, would have to grow at a rate that we've never seen you know, in our history, right. right, of, of energy consumption. And so I get worried about that, you know, that, and, and what does that mean for prices? What does it mean for land use? Um, especially, you know, being an Eastern Colorado kid, um, you know, Eastern Colorado is where we have the wind resource and that's really what's going to drive that wedge of energy supply as it relates to the power production in, in our state. And I, I would say, you know, on some of the conversations I've had, the infrastructure that has to go in place to to make some of these things happen. Yeah. I'm, again, like as we said, all for a full basket of, of solutions. But right now where we sit today, and if we're going to try and put a timeline on something, you know, yeah. what corners are we willing to cut to get there? Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's a benefit for us. Right. I mean, one of the, uh, you know, I'll just give you another kind of, again, try, and I, I've tried to do some, work to basically, because it, this I think this is the hardest concept for people to compare a kilowatt hour to a barrel of oil. Like yeah. how do those two things relate? How do they come together? Yeah. And you can convert everything to a British thermal unit. That's the saving grace in all this. Like it, it, all of that converts to a unit of energy that you can standardize and normalize across various forms. And one of the most interesting exercises and eye opening uh, that I did, I took our decline curve that we expect to have in our wells that are drilled in the northern extremity of the DJ. And I converted our oil molecules and our gas molecules to BTUs. And we have a 400 turbine wind farm that sits directly or uh, 25 miles to our east of our development. This this 400 turbine wind farm sits all around the Pawnee Buttes, which again, I'm not claiming Eastern Colorado is like a you know any sort of tourist destination, but 
you know, Pawnee Buttes is like the most interesting topographical feature of the Eastern Plains, basically, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> in the Chalk Bluffs. But th these turbines are kind of not built directly on top of the Butte, but mm -hmm. on the on the Chalk Bluffs and the ridge lines that surround it. And you can get power production data from this particular wind farm by month from the EIA. It again, the richness of data is it's spectacular. Yeah. Um, and, but what I discovered when I did all this conversion is that one of our two-mile horizontal wells will, over its life will produce the same number of BTU equivalents as the kilowatt hours produced off of 14 of those turbines in the Cedar Creek wind farm. Now, there's 400 of those turbines. When you draw a polygon around it, again, Google Maps, awesome tool. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can figure out what, you know, what area you're occupying. It's 60,000 acres just around the perimeter of those 400 turbines. And wow. then you can see them for 35 miles on all sides mm -hmm. beyond that. Not the end of the world, but fact is you can see them. Yep. And they blink at night. Um, and they're, four, you know, they're 400 feet tall. They're big. They're massive. Yeah. I've seen the trains coming through. They're, we were doing a, uh, this is a little side story, sorry. Yeah. We were doing a field tour. And we visited the Halliburton uh, facility up, up in... Uh, in the DJ basin right next door, they're making the wind wind turbines and they're loading them up onto plane or onto uh, trains. Yeah. And so we had a bunch of investors out there and we're all looking at the Halbert and stuff and everyone kind of turns. Everyone got really interested in they're loading up this giant, massive one turbine onto like three cars of trains. Right. And it disbands and everyone was like, holy cow. And so, you know, you have this happening in, in the DJ base and happening together, but just the size and scale of those things yeah. was kind of put on place in, just in that moment of, yeah, these are big. Yeah, so, and they're built remotely. I, yeah. mean, they're, I mean, they're installed remotely right now. I mean, this is truly areas of Well County that almost no one traffics, right? I mean, right. Um, but it, the, the reality of the land use is that uh, if we put uh, 14 wells on two pads that occupy a total of 10 acres, that that's gonna throw off the same number of energy units as 30,000 acres of wind turbines. So 14 times 14, 196, basically half of that footprint of that wind farm could be achieved with two five acre pads um, with seven wells apiece. And so, again, uh, you know, and that's it sort of resonates with, you know, people who are concerned about Environmental, environmental impacts. Sure, um, they by definition, and I, as I am too, I want to protect our open space. And uh, I really do know, think that we, message is lost. Yeah, and and at least you know, wind you can still graze around it, um, but you know, those are massive structures. I mean, they are as tall as that confluence building. If people have been across from REI, that that apartment building. I mean, that's there's a slide in my deck that sort of shows that scale, but. Um, you know that's the type that's the that's the height of a wind turbine right and they're placed you know you know every you know for every month i mean they're, they're the density and that's still a big question like you know uh is the density right out there um and it may require more land use if they build bigger turbines because right now we, you know that's a prime wind corridor the the area we the are area. in i mean okay. it is bright purple right that that is the best wind resource we have in the state um so it's only natural that was first to be developed it's just like our business yeah we're gonna we're gonna drill the first things back yeah best things first right yeah
but you know to to actually supply what we need in this state um, because again you can put up a lot of flashy megawatt capacity numbers and it seem really big but that's just capacity that that doesn't say what it outputs mm-hmm. and that doesn't say what it outputs in July um, you gotta you gotta do the megawatt hour <laughs> a calculation to right. to get there and that's the actual volume of power we we demand and consume. And then not to mention the storage issues of it, of, of that right. peak and, you know, when are we going to actually need it? What day is that? Right. And storage is key. And I mean, that's the beauty of hydrocarbon. We can store very easily oil or natural gas very cheaply. And that's the part of the equation that, you know, if it is, when, if and when it is figured out, um, you know, the wind and solar, um, you know, opportunity, I think will be, um, much better, much more viable. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. I want to kind of take, I mean, you've obviously been a, a strong advocate for the, for the industry. You've, you've dedicated a career to, to energy. Um, as you think about now as a CFO of a, of a company, how does what's going on here in, in Colorado from a political standpoint, you're, you're an operator here change some of your financial decisions and in the way that you allocate capital here? Yeah, very interesting question. Um, I'm glad we had our money raised before Prop 112 was titled at the Secretary of State. I mean, I don't know how that would have played. Um, So we basically raised our capital in two phases. I might have mentioned it. But uh, the second phase closed before Prop 112 was Mm -hmm. sort of submitted really to the Secretary going, of State, yeah. and there was visibility that something like that may, be, may find itself on the ballot. Um, I think there's a pretty, uh, there's a clear public market discount um, in the equity markets in particular um, for, for DJ Basin-centric names. And th- I mean, the, the whole upstream, and it's even morphed into, I think, midstream, but there's, there, you know, the buy side uh, is, totally reforming itself um, uh, into demanding more yield, uh, more return of capital versus just growth. Um, And um, I'm sure there's a lot, look, there's a lot of self-loathing on, in all corners of this equation because the, you know, the investor base was enabling a lot of the, you know, NAV driven We did what they asked us to do. Well, there, I mean, there's a there's a part of that, right? Yeah. I mean, everyone's complicit to a degree, right? Uh, um, but now, you know, you're being delivered a message uh, that that is is much different than what we've spent a lot of our careers navigating. And so, uh, yeah, how you how you exit investments is a real question for a private equity backed company mm-hmm. like ours, uh, when you've got a lot of you know a good number of DJ names that might be trading basically. You know their enterprise values are basically their product, their their value, their production. There's not a lot of credit being afforded by the public markets to their inventories, and um, of course that's what we possess. Now we uh, we think that the rural nature of our position will be attractive to somebody eventually as they sort of exhaust the inventory that they that are they're attempting to, to convert to production in one yeah. of the urban corridors, but. Um, yeah, we uh, we are fortunate that we own a lot of big leases that are that are largely held by production. So, one of the benefits of our position, we don't have a, a, a lot of 
capital spending left to do to, to completely hold our position right. in perpetuity, basically, as long as we're keeping production Production going. there. Yeah, sure. So, but yeah, we're, you know, we're, our capital is, we're trying to stage that in uh, very prudently right. at this point. I mean, we've got, I know we've had a tough week in the oil markets here, but, um, you know, uh, a $55 price for us is, is, is very doable. Um, certainly would love to see 65. I mean, that opens up a ton of value. A lot of value, people. right. Um, but, uh, um, you know, while you're sort of on the, on the brink of just generating the right economic terms, and, and we're getting, we're not in a program. So we're drilling one-off wells, which, you know, for small, small operators like us, you know, our costs are certainly different because we don't have program buying power mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the bigger independents certainly do in the basin. But our big objective right now is just we're in an area that's pretty devoid of recent vintage data points. Um, we're in an area that, uh, you know, ironically is right next to where the Jake well was was drilled and kicked off the whole kicked horizontal, off the whole horizontal, horizontal revolution. Right. But, you know, frack design was tiny um, compared to what we're executing today. And so, uh, you know, we believe the resources is reliable up there. We have to prove that for yeah. people. Um, um, but we think, you know, the the very bimodal distribution of results that, that were done, you know, in the early part of this decade um, can be corrected with different engineering approach. I have... Along those same lines, I mean, you have assets in Colorado, you have assets in Wyoming, uh, and certainly not asking you necessarily to speak specifically about your incremental acreage process, but have you started to see any divergence in value of acreage between state lines? Not where we are. And again, we really hug the border. Right. Um, uh, there's some very interesting things going on in more northern Laramie County. Um Hellas Oil and Gas has drilled some really interesting wells here in the last year, year and a half. Um, So that's probably the the thing that's catching, capturing people's attention, you know, up even north of us into Wyoming. That uh, is probably something to watch. Um, uh, But uh, I would say that we we have not yet and um, seen any bifurcation between the two states. Well, that's positive. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I mean, again, we don't have a lot of representative data points. I sure. mean, Wyoming is peppered with permits from EOG and Anadarko. And so it's been a bit harder for us to, to um, wedge our way in to Wyoming in the regions, again, very region southern, southern Laramie yeah. County. But uh, just because of the, the dominance of those two entities and their per- permit footprint um, has you know, has been a challenge uh, for anybody trying to establish a, a, a sizable position alongside them in an operated sense. In an operated sense, yeah. sure. Well, that's... Okay. What do you got? <laughs> the, uh, well, we're, we're, we're coming up on an hour here, and um, I was going to take a look at the... We, we've got... The, this podcast has got its own emails, the OG podcast at Intercom Inc., where people can uh, ask questions and we can relay them on. Uh, sometimes you know, also with the, the Twitter, Twitter feed, we can uh, get stuff through there as well. But 
I'm taking a look. I've got a couple questions here, but I, I'm not, I think we've already actually probably already answered those uh, with around Clear Creek resource, uh, position where you are, what's the impact of new legislation on your production and future plans. I don't know if there's anything you can expand upon that, but that we already haven't talked about. Yeah, probably, probably not. I mean, we're still yeah. kind of delineation mode right, right now. Um, uh, so uh, we're, we're picking our spots carefully. Um, and, uh, you know, but the idea would be as you get into next year, you're, um, if you've, if you've connected the dots well enough um, and have enough production history to give your sponsors confidence enough uh, that you've, you've got something that's, that's viable and repeatable um, you know, then you, then you start to act a little more real <laughs> and hopefully the, the flywheel of internally generated cash flow and, and, and some modest use of, you know, reserve-based lending, th those sorts of things start to take shape. And, uh, you know, we've recently uh, done our first credit facility for instance, but it's, it's early, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of PDP light still at this, sure. at this stage, but, um, um, we're really happy with, I mean, we've drilled basically, um, six wells so far. Um, one of which, uh, has been on almost a year now and is a really great result relative to some to the, even 2015 vintage well that was drilled about a mile away from it by another operator. And, uh, so we're, we're seeing really positive indications, but we're not, you know, ready to, to stand a rig up and, and utilize it, you know, Day in, day out. Yeah, full force. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, yeah there's, again, a uh, question along here. But I, I, to be honest with you, I'm not going to go down that road because it's I think you've already answered it. So, um, well, we've covered a lot of territory, um, you know, from the, the broad macro on, on down to just operations. And, you know, uh, you, you do, you've we've mentioned this a couple of times that we have this your, your reference material here and you said it's available. Is that correct? I'd be happy to share it. Of course. So, yeah. Is, is, can you, is it publicly available or do people have to come and request it? Um, we, we have set up a shared folder that I, depending on the, the strictness of your firewall, I don't know if some people may not be able to access it. I don't know. I, many people can. Um, so I'd be happy to provide that link to you and maybe you could share it to the audience or certainly, um, but it's a long thing that I couldn't recite to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Big long URL that, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, fair enough. I'll tell you what, what we'll do is, and with intercom designing our website, maybe we should like make a link to it there. <laughs> we, we can work on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, thank you yeah. <laughs> for the plug. Sure. No, I, uh, yeah, what we'd like to do is, uh, if anybody's interested in that, you can either contact uh, uh, myself or Aaron or Intercom or potentially reach out to you if they know your email address. And, sure. And and have access to Is it to wise to give it on a podcast or should I? You know, just <laughs> if anyone's interested, we'll let you know. How's okay. That one. Sounds and good. We'll work on uh, seeing a way that we can open that up a little bit because it is uh, actually great information. I it was a little bit rich for me, even I was like, wow, there's a lot here. So yeah, again, it's more of a reference, um, to equip one with some information as you get, cause I mean, questions come from all, all sorts of corners. If you get into these conversations and it's, and you'll learn a lot. I mean, I've learned a ton, uh, and I think that's the, again, 
also a, a good thing to be doing. Always, always be learning. Absolutely. Know, especially from people who, you know, just again, have totally different background and perspective that you do. Cause we all get in these echo chambers, especially with the way social media works. And I think you need, you know, need to get, get out there and, and, and get exposure to other viewpoints. Certainly. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to wrap this on up. And so, Brian, thank you very much thank for you being guys. here today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, do appreciate honored. that. And, um, you know, if we have any questions, I'll forward it off to you. But until next time, uh, everyone, thank you for listening in. We appreciate it. And uh, until next time, talk to you later. Bye now.